Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Welcome back, one and all. Another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Podcast where we get into some opinion scholarship from time to time, some political topics and all kinds of hot water. But things have been a little bit different lately. We've um, had some changes, uh, Kyle and I, in our our lives that are making this um, uh, recording schedule a little bit more difficult. So you might have seen a little gaps and you may still. Uh, but I want to bring something to you today. It's a little bit unusual. It's not like my normal opinion scholarship. It's something that I've sort of found along the way where there will be questions that come up um, when I'm reading something or listening to a podcast or whatever that I find to be really interesting, a really interesting question. And there's been a couple of instances on the podcast where I try to bring those questions to you and try to answer them as best I can. And it's fun. You know, it's the idea of exploring some new idea. Cell phone fell right out of my pocket. Apologies. Um, exploring some new idea, but taking the time just to think because uh, it's not often that we have that opportunity. Um, you may think that's silly, but apart from your work where you're being paid to think, if thinking, critical thinking is a part of your job, probably it isn't. Uh, but if it is, uh, how often outside of work are you doing that? And how often are you doing it with something that really interests you? And so there's been a couple of questions that have come up in different contexts, but they sound kind of similar. And I've been noodling on them, and I haven't really had an opportunity to think it through. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to try to think it through with you. And uh, I don't know how good of a job I did. I thought I started off strong and maybe fizzled a little bit. It got more difficult towards the end, which you'll see. But the questions that keep coming up are... Well, one of them is the phrase who we are versus the phrase what we are. Who we are versus what we are. And the question is, is there a difference? And if there is a difference, what is it and what does that mean? Who we are versus what we are. There's another one that comes up that's what we are versus what we do. Right? What we are versus what we do. Is there a difference? And if there is a difference, what does it mean? So these might sound silly to you on the surface. I don't know what your instinct is when when I pose those questions, how you feel inclined to answer. But when someone says to consider the concept what we are versus what we do, my instinct is to say that they're not the same thing. 
that what we do and what we are are different. And that, that idea is actually very difficult to think through, especially when you're coming from the perspective that I'm coming from. It's critical. I don't think that what we do is what we are. I want to focus on this what we are versus who we are for a second because I'm not going to talk about it much, so I just want to open with it. This question came up to me when um, Kyle and I were talking about uh, transgender ideology, the cultural changes that we're seeing in, in, uh, in the world, but certainly in the United States surrounding gender ideology, and uh, just, just thinking it through and talking about it. And one of the things I noticed is that People, it's uh, clearly this argument circles around identity. There's no question about it. People's identity is in something that's important to them. It's what they believe to be unique about themselves that sets them apart from everybody else, but also something that unifies them with people, like group identity. So it's very hard to pin down, but it seems to still be very, very important to people um, their identity, what that means. And the question came up is like when people talk about this transgender ideology that they're making, they're confusing these two things. When they say what I am and who I am, if that makes sense. So if somebody is going to say, I'm a woman, even though they're biologically a, a male, if they say I'm a woman, um, and that implies in this day and age hormones and surgery and things like that. What they're saying is that I can't be who I am unless I'm changed into what I am, if that makes sense. I have to become what I am in order to be that. And something about that struck me as a mistake. It struck me as a naive sentiment. It's like, I can't be, I know this is a loaded topic, right? But it's like, I can't be a woman till I am a woman, right? I can't, I can't be what I am until I fix the outside, until I fix the, you know, the, um, the surface level indicators. And it just seems like somebody who hasn't thought that through well enough. And that's pretty clear when we see all the hype around what is a woman, you know, the, the Matt Walsh documentary and the conversations and countless interviews you can see usually on college campuses with, with young people. If you go and you, and you search those things, you'll see People can't answer that question now. What is a woman? And so it's it's strange. Like who you are and what you are is a difficult thing to accomplish if you don't know what that is, and if you confuse it for these surface markers, you know, to be a woman. So that's one of these kind of strange. I don't know. Strange kind of quirks of language who we are versus what we are. And it seems to me that there is a difference. And people who consider themselves to be self-actualized or genuine people, people who know, quote, who they are, they're not concerned about what they are. They're not concerned about the surface level. They're not concerned about what people think about them. They're not concerned about the insults and the, uh, the naysayers and the haters. They're not interested in that. They're secure in who they are. And it seems like the people who aren't secure and who they are, or don't know who they are. They're more concerned about what they are. And I think there is a difference there. Now we can circle back to the first problem, what we are versus what we do, because I think this is just kind of baffling to me, actually. 
So I'm going to just jump into this rather than over explain it. And you try to see what I mean as I go along here. So let me just start like this. We've all heard the expression, you are what you eat. And we understand the wisdom of that, even if it's not literally true. But what about this one? You are what you do. How does that strike you? Wise? Oblique? Contrived? Can describing what you do ever exhaust the core of what you are in all of its glory at the deepest level? What would this even mean? I can add, so what I am then is a mathematician? I can swim, so I guess I can be chalked up to a swimmer, right? Surely not. What we do extends far beyond such limited expressions. It is forgivable to fall into this kind of error, of course. We tell ourselves something of the kind all the time. When we're asked to describe ourselves or are introduced to someone new, what do we say? Hi, I'm Chris. I'm a father, a dentist, a world traveler, etc., etc. When we interact with our society or government, we're told the same. You are a licensed driver. You are a member of the community, a convicted criminal, etc. We tell ourselves that what we are is what we do. Now, we agree, I'm sure, that we're far more than just these things. But suppose we make an exhaustive list. What if we could lay out everything we do, from the most trivial to the most splendid? We breathe and metabolize and observe. We produce energy within our cells and continually repair our DNA. We learn and grow and die. We exercise our bodies in such and such a way, our mind in such and such a way, etc. and so on. If it were possible to make this list complete, would that tell us what we are? Okay, so there's a way in which this makes sense. Let's consider the idea of form for a minute. We can agree that how we are formed provides at least limitations to what we can do. And so perhaps also what we can be. For instance, I don't have wings and therefore cannot fly. Being unable to fly rules out the possibility that I am a bird or a bat or an insect. And while we're talking of bats, I cannot echolocate either. See, as a human being, I am organized in such a way that facilitates a certain kind of experience, a human experience. I have nimble fingers and thumbs, and so I can manipulate and analyze the world in a way nothing else can. I can think abstractly and am self-aware, which allows for a unique inner life of emotions, fantasies, and meaning. In this way, it is clearly the case that our form determines our experience. And what do we really mean by the phrase, what we are? 
if not for that unique pattern of thought and behavior that constitutes our experience. The same is true of all sentient things. What a bat is, is the unique experience of being a bat. The same for a blade of grass, a paramecium, and even a particle of matter. But wait, you'll say, a particle of matter isn't sentient, it doesn't have experience. While I'd love to argue to the contrary, it doesn't actually matter in this case. The non-sentient two seem to be what they do, just the same. A chunk of metal is a paperweight, a conductor of electricity, etc. It is what it does. Even atoms at the most fundamental subatomic level are described the same way. When a physicist is asked to explain what matter is, they respond with the qualities of what they do. An electron, they tell us, is its mass, its charge, its spin. It is nothing else but these. Its mass, charge, and spin tell us how it exists in the quantum field of which it is a part. They describe how it will interact with other particles and even the probability of them doing so. What else could you want to know about an electron? Well, how about the question we started with? What is it? And they will object. I just told you what it is. No, no, I'm afraid not. You told me what it does. What is the thing that has spin and mass and charge? What is the thing you call electron? But they cannot shed more light on what the thing is beyond what it is observed to do. Something fundamentally seems missing from this definition, doesn't it? Now, returning to the human being, I ask again, what is it? What is this thing which observes and metabolizes, hopes and dreams, thinks and acts as human? Is it enough to simply list those actions and to say that human form constrains thoughts, actions, and experience to a uniquely human one? This answer, it seems, leaves only the thing to be defined. What is the thing that has a human experience? And another question springs to my mind. If the constraints of form are what make an experiencer a specific thing, could it be that the underlying experiencer is the same in all cases? To put it plainly, if I were a fish, my experience would be that of a fish. I would be unequipped to have human experience, since the prerequisite organs and capacities are missing. Now, if that same fish suddenly acquired those organs and capacities, would its experience then become human? Would it then become human? If so, we can understand the thing to be explained as the subject, as the seat of consciousness as the thing capable of experience. Fish, bat, human, and perhaps even the electron too, are, at the deepest level, the thing capable of experience. 
And see, here we find the one thing that cannot be on the exhaustive list of what we do, which nonetheless is what we are. That is our subjective experiential perspective. The feeling of being I and being other from the world around you. It is strange that this same thing should equally apply to all sentient beings. Strange because it does answer the question, what are we? But fails spectacularly to distinguish any one thing from another. You see, an experiencer can be a human, or a bat, or a bug. So what we are cannot be distinguished from anything else apart from the constraints of form. Now, much more could be said on this, but I'll leave it to the mystics in the audience to note the implication that all is one. In summary, what we do differentiates one being from another, but can never address the question, what we are. And this brings me to my favorite subject, to the nature of God. Why, you ask? Because when I ask the question, what is God?, I've always accepted the same kind of fallacy. I say, God is creator and rest satisfied. But isn't this description merely what God does? God creates, right? But what is the thing that creates? Just as sentient beings are defined as that which is capable of experience, God can be thought of as that which is capable of existence. This is not exactly circular reasoning. I'm not defining God here by what he does, but by its potentiality. God, even in the absence of a cosmos, is that from which reality can emerge. God is nothing if not potentiality. Now, I realize that this isn't as illuminating as it might be. It leaves the that which part in obscurity. And in the phrase, that which is capable of existence, what could be more important to understand? To this end, I offer a comparison of our conclusions about the nature of man and of God, beyond merely what we do. For human beings, we suggest they are that which is capable of experience. And for God, that which is capable of existence. In both cases, we see something like potentiality. But do the similarities run deeper? Can one shed light on the other? What about the words experience and existence? They are different words, but do they have different meaning? Existence is that which is experienced, right? Presumably, without existence, there would be nothing to experience. It is true, there may be more in existence, not yet actualized, or far off in the undiscovered reaches of space, that remain unexperienced. So, perhaps a distinction holds. But even this falls to the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics, which insists that a conscious observer is required in the calculus of reality. And it falls to the coincidence of opposites, 
which insists, if experience is impossible without existence, and vice versa, they are in fact one phenomena. What could this mean, and what does it tell us about that which, about the bearer of properties, about what we are? The truth is, I haven't a clue. I cannot say for certain, but I can speculate. It may be that experience and existence are not distinct phenomena. They're not just correlated, but absolutely identical. And if we ride this wave, we come to the conclusion that the potential for each is also identical. That which makes existence possible, God. And that which makes experience possible, sentience, cannot be pulled apart. If we are the thing capable of experience, we are also the thing capable of existence. The elusive that which becomes fundamental reality. And the answer to what we are and what God is demand but one answer. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>